We thank you that you remain faithful no matter what the situation may be in our life, in our world. That you are the rock that never changes. You are immutable. You are the same yesterday, today, and you will be forever perfect, almighty, the only wise God. Therefore, it is total insanity that we would not trust you and love you and serve you. So in our worship today, open up your word that we might see how great and glorious you are and move our hearts to yield. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 We're doing a series out of the gospel according to Mark entitled Simply Jesus. And we want to get our focus back on that one, indeed, who is the only one, the one who died in our place and is our Lord and our Redeemer. The Lord Jesus grew up in a little town called Nazareth. It's in the Galilee. It's a small village, probably about two, three hundred people. So everyone knew everyone, and most everyone was related to everyone. You know small towns like that. And the first record we have of Jesus going to his little village, that is, after he left and he was baptized and began his public ministry, his first visit back is described in Luke chapter 4. You don't need to turn there, but in his very first visit since leaving town, he went in the synagogue and preached. And as he preached in the synagogue, he opened up the scriptures to the book of Isaiah and talked about the one who was going to come and redeem Israel. And he said, today, this has been accomplished in your presence. He closed the book and sat down. And everyone was amazed at his teaching. They were amazed at his gracious words. All spoke well of him. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? Look at how well he's doing. But then Jesus did something that disturbed them. He said, you know, a prophet is without honor in his own country. And he told them two stories, one about Elijah going to a Gentile woman to help her out, and Naaman being a Syrian, getting healed and he said there are a lot of people in Israel who weren't healed, but God reached out to the Gentiles and that made the people furious in his hometown. And they tried to grab hold of him to throw him off a cliff and kill him. But he snuck out and got away. We read, oh, maybe, I'm guessing six months later that Jesus was teaching and this account actually comes out of Mark chapter 3. His family heard about it, and they actually went to persuade him to come back home. And this is what the scriptures say in Mark 3, verse 21. His family heard about this. They went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Now, I don't know if that included Mary and what that would do to your theology of Mary. It included the brothers and the sisters. They went to apprehend him and... They thought he was crazy. And now it's about a year since his first visit to his little town of 
Nazareth, his hometown, after his family thought he was crazy and the town people tried to kill him, then he goes back. I tell you, that's an act of grace to return. He goes back to his hometown, and this is the second trip. We read about it in Mark chapter 6. So if you have your New Testament with you, your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 6. You can just follow along if you want to, or you also have the scriptures in the pew rack in front of you. Mark chapter 6. <coughs> Some people think this was the same visit as Luke 4. I don't think so. The two are quite different. The first was something of a private visit. He went alone, brought no disciples, performed no miracles. They tried to kill him by throwing him off the cliff. The second visit, he came as a rabbi with followers. He came with the 12, and this is just before he sends out the 12, which is the next story in Mark 6, uh, to do amazing ministry, and he sends them out two by two. But he wants to teach them in his own hometown something about respect and the lack thereof, and that part of their training when they go out to minister for him is to receive rejection. So when he comes back the second time, He's not greeted with admiration, as you might think a hometown boy done good would receive. No, instead, their attitude toward him has not changed. Their disposition is still one of hatred. They don't try to kill him, but they do try to discredit him, and we soon, soon realize that home is not always a healthy place. There's no place like home. Mark chapter 6 beginning with verse one. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, Nazareth, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Now this is tracking with his first visit. Taught in the synagogue, people were amazed. But their amazement was somewhat different this time. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. Let's stop right there. And if you're taking notes, the first movement in this amazing story is that the people are amazed at Jesus. The reason for their amazement, we could say, is his amazing wisdom. Where did he get this unusual wisdom? And notice they do say, the wisdom that has been given to him. And what about the mighty works and miracles? So you've got the wisdom and the works being performed, and that's causing this amazement among them. By the way, the Greek word for amaze is the word wonder, where someone is mystified, stupefied, surprised, shocked, astonished. Throw in whatever adjective you want. The people were amazed at his wisdom and amazed at his works. His preaching was authentic and biblical. It was simple and direct and straightforward and powerful, and it had an authority like, like no one they had ever heard before, and that shocked them. And his miracles, wow. 
They'd not seen mighty miracles done like this. And what they'd heard that he was doing in Capernaum was even greater than what they had seen. And they were amazed. But their amazement was not so much at the great wisdom of his teaching and the great works that he was performing. Notice the way they asked the question, where does he get this wisdom that's been given to him? And where does he get the power to do these miracles? That's the real question. And that question is based on the fact that we know this guy. He's one of us. We know his history. He's a carpenter. The Greek word here simply means one who is a handyman. It could also refer to stone masonry, but it referred to one who worked with his hands. Many of the small villages in Palestine, in Israel in that day, had a handyman. And he was the one who would fix the shutters when they were broken, repair the yokes, fashion the plows, build the homes. He was the guy that they would call on to do these things, a common laborer, in other words. We know this guy. He's one of us. And he didn't grow up with that kind of wisdom. He lived here for 30 years. We watched him. And he didn't have that kind of power. This is all shocking, which militates against the idea that Jesus as a boy was performing miracles left and right. They knew him. He'd followed the father in the family business. Imagine this. The maker of heaven and earth is now making plows and yokes and repairing gates. And by the way, when Jesus does this, he says to every common man, your work is noble and be not ashamed. There is no poor job if it's an honest job. And Jesus shows that. But they despised him because he was a working man and not a respected rabbi. In John's gospel, at another occasion, they said something like this. How does he get this learning and know the letters, the teachings, having never been educated himself? And you and I have a way of putting down others, especially if they're in our own family, if they're from our own hometown. When they rise above us, <laughs> jealousy and envy gives us the ability to try to pull them back down. Did you know that a crab trap has no top to it? Because if one crab tries to crawl out, the other crabs will pull him back down? That sounds like a lot of churches. A lot of families, a lot of hometowns, and that's what Jesus was experiencing. This guy's a Galilean peasant like the rest of us. Don't pretend to be something that you aren't. It's like the nanny who worked for the president when he was a, but a little boy, and she said later on, it's hard for me to believe that the little boy whose diapers I changed and whose nose I wiped is now the leader of the free world. I have a rough time imagining that. And they had a rough time imagining Jesus. We know his history, but we also know his family. Notice in verse 3, they say, isn't this Mary's son? Now, I find it interesting. The first time he came to Nazareth, 
If you read Luke chapter 4, they said, isn't this Joseph's son? But now there's no mention of Joseph. One possibility is that Joseph was dead, and that's why they called him Mary's son. Because even if the father, I I mean, when, when the father was around, you would always call him Joseph's son. By the way, if Joseph died early, maybe that's one reason why Jesus stayed in the little town of Nazareth for 30 years, because he had fatherly responsibilities to live up to for the family as being the eldest child, eldest son. Now, I think there's more to it than that. God was preparing him, and it was God's will, and it wasn't time for him to be revealed, but that's a a human reason why he would have stayed around and helped out the family. I tell you, the people in this town knew him well. But they said, this is Mary's son, which by implication, by innuendo, is a slam. Because even if the father had been dead, they'd still mention his name. But when they say Mary's son, you know what they're saying? This is the town that knows him well, 200, 300 people strong. They've been with him for 30 years. They know the story. Virgin born? They still didn't believe it. One time when Jesus was teaching in John's gospel, this is John chapter 7, and Jesus was talking about being of God and and God is a father, and they said, we have Abraham for our father, and Jesus said, no, if you had Abraham as your father, you'd do what Abraham does. And you know what they said? They said, we weren't born of fornication, hint, hint, that tracked Jesus everywhere he went. And I'm reminded of that saying, those with weak minds and pathetic arguments often find refuge in ridicule. They just put him down. You're Mary's son. Oh, that's right. We remember the story. You can't pull the wool over our eyes. And they would have used words I can't use this morning. Where does this guy, this uneducated guy then, get the ability to speak like he does and get the ability to perform miracles? I know. His power comes from the devil. And if you go back to Mark chapter 3, you don't have to do that right now, but if you go back to Mark chapter 3, that's exactly what they were saying. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Beelzebub is in him. That's where he gets his wisdom. And they then commit the unpardonable sin, as it's described in the New Testament, of attributing to the devil the good works of God. His teaching and his miracles, his mighty works come from evil powers. And they took offense at him. Look at that statement, verse, end of verse 3. They took offense at him. Very interesting Greek word. It's almost identical to our English word scandal, scandalon. A scandalon is something that uh, causes you to trip up or stumble. It's something that horrifies you and disgusts you. It's abhorrent to you. It's an embarrassment to you. This is a scandal. You're a scandal to us. You're an embarrassment to this town. 
That's what they said to Jesus. Welcome home. And the people were amazed that his power came from the evil one. And then Jesus reminded them of the words he said a year earlier at his first visit. Only in his hometown, this is verse 4, only in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. Some think it comes from Aesop's fables. The lion and the fox. This famous proverb that is repeated over and over through the ages. Familiarity breeds contempt. And it is not more vividly seen anywhere in all the Bible than this particular story. They knew him well, and they despised him, not thinking that he could have any greatness. They overlooked his qualities. They overlooked his words and his deeds because of the jealousy and envy in their own heart. And the awful truth is, that many people look at the story of Jesus and come to the same conclusion. He cannot be God incarnate. And while they may be surprised and amazed at the wonderful teaching of Christ and the good works of Christ, being familiar with the story sometimes makes people like us treat it with disrespect. Familiar things become common things, right? and we treat them with disrespect and take them for granted. I like what Philip Brooks, the pastor, said. He said, familiarity breeds contempt only when you're talking about contemptible things or contemptible people. I mean, the closer you get to Jesus, you ought to love him more. A person with great character, the closer you get to them, the more you appreciate them, right? If you're open. Usually, we're the ones that bring contempt into the situation. And the people in Nazareth had a bad reputation. Remember, this, this was said of them in John chapter 1, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Remember that? This is a little town with a bad reputation, and they're saying, Jesus, you're making it worse. Imagine that. They had all the privileges. He lived among them. He grew up with them. He preached to them did miracles before them, and they still would not recognize the one who had come to them. By the way, if you're living a solid Christian life, not perfect, but genuine, and your family rejects you, you're drinking the same cup your Savior was drinking, the rejection of his own. John chapter 1 and verse 11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Almost always when I'm preaching from that text, I talk about Jesus coming to the Jews, and they rejected him. But now we've got, even, we've got to go even a little closer, not just to the Jews. He came to his own flesh and blood, and they rejected him. Rejected him. His hometown, his nation, his family. And if people reject you for Jesus Christ, you are just like your Savior. And that's what he wanted the disciples to see. I'm sure they were shocked 
when they expected almost everywhere else they went, they received this hero's welcome, and the place was crowded, and people were cheering, and now in his own hometown, they disrespect him. Blind to his identity, deaf to his message, their hearts became hard. And I'm afraid this happens to many people who go to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Spiritual things become common things, and you become familiar with the divine, and you despise it or treat it as nothing. If you're shocked at what they did in the little town of Nazareth, be equally shocked what they do in the church called South or any other Bible-believing church. You come to this service, and it's a familiar thing because you have it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Let the worship of God be taken away from us, and we will treasure every time we gather, whether it's in the catacombs or out in the woods. But in America, it's so easy. And we despise him. Maybe we are Nazareth. But that's not the end of the story. Look at verse 5. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. I love the way that's stated. <laughs> he couldn't do any miracles. Oh, yeah, yeah, he did a couple things, healed a few people. You know, like that was no big deal. Verse 6, and he was amazed at their lack of faith. So at first the people were amazed at Jesus and now Jesus is amazed at the people. That's, a, that's an astounding statement, remarkable. In fact, two remarkable things are stated here. We'll take the second one first, that God could be amazed. I mean, theologically, God is, we know God is never surprised and God is never astonished and God is never caught off guard, but Jesus uses these words to describe his own feeling. He was surprised. It's interesting. There's only one other time, as far as I can tell, where the Bible says that Jesus was surprised. It's in Matthew chapter 8. It's when a Roman centurion said, Will you come and heal my servant? And he said to Jesus, You don't even have to go where he is. You just heal him from here. Just say the word and he'll be healed. I'm a man under authority. I tell my soldiers what to do. They do it. You're a person with authority. You tell this servant of mine to be healed and he'll be healed. Long distance healing. And Jesus was amazed at the centurion's faith. Isn't it interesting? Faith is expressed where you wouldn't expect it from a Roman soldier. And where you would expect it, in his own hometown, there wasn't any. Jesus is amazed at faith when it crops up where it shouldn't be and amazed when there isn't faith where it should be. I find that amazing. He's amazed. The second, well, the reason for this amazement was their lack of faith. Uh, that's what we need to establish, their lack of faith. The oldest sin in the book, unbelief, right? 
It's the sin that brought sin into the world. It's the sin that kept Israel out of Canaan, unbelief. It's the sin that you and I, when we express it and live in it, pollutes our lives, and it is the sin that populates hell. Unbelief. Jesus said in John chapter 8, Therefore you shall die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The greatest sin is not murder. The greatest sin is not adultery. The greatest sin is not homosexuality. The greatest sin is unbelief. Let's get it straight. It's where it starts. He's amazed at their lack of faith. But then the second expression that is equally astounding is the result of their lack of faith. And it's going to be a lack of blessing. He could not. Now again, when you're talking about God, you don't use the phrase, he cannot. At least we don't use it very often, but we need to use it sometimes. Because God cannot, what? Lie? Sin? Be unfaithful to his promise? Lose power? Forget? I mean, there's a lot of things God cannot do because he's God. And one of the the things God cannot do is bless when people don't trust. Oh, he can heal a few people because there's a few people with faith. What a detrimental situation. It's not that he was physically incapable because he did heal a few, but it was morally inconsistent. Where unbelief abounds, the power of God is gone. In any church, in any soul, in any family, when we stop believing God, the blessing goes, right? You say, I've been a Christian for 30 years. Big deal. I mean, praise God for his grace, but what about today? Well, I just think I ought to be able to rest on that track record. I don't think so. Persevered to the end, that's the sign of a true believer. Someone said churches would be different places if congregations would only understand that when the preaching goes forth, the congregation preaches half the sermon. In an atmosphere of expectancy, even the poorest message can catch fire. In an atmosphere of critical coldness or indifference, even the best preaching can fall flat. Do you ever think that you... Take part in the sermon. I'm here, aren't I? Well, that's good. I'm glad for that. I'm trying to stay awake, and I know it's tough for some of you. I understand that. You're not easy to follow. You're not easy to listen to. Boy, I really understand that. But the more you put in, the more you get out. And you preach half the sermon. I preach better when you are engaged. I didn't say great, I said better. (laughs) It makes a difference. It really does. 
I love the story of the pastor who did a wedding ceremony for a couple. They gave him an envelope with some money in it, and he said, no, I can't take this. Why don't you take it and go buy a steak dinner? The man, the, the boy who was being married, kind of with a twinkle in his eye, said, what if there's not enough money in there to buy a steak dinner? <laughs> to which the pastor said, if you would have put more in, you would have gotten more out. That was a lousy sermon. Well, it it probably was, but you get more out of it when you put more into it. And even the weakest sermon can have something for you if you mix it with faith. Oh, but not in Nazareth. Nazareth. Not in that town. New life was not experienced in that atmosphere of unbelief. Unbelief robs men of their highest blessing. Unbelief is pitifully powerless and impotent. And any church who does not trust God by faith will never move forward. We read in Jeremiah chapter 2, Be appalled, be astonished, O heavens, and be ye desolate. Why? My people have committed two sins. Number one, they forsake me, the spring of living water. By, by the way, which is a great title for Jehovah. Who is Jehovah? He is the spring of living water. They reject me, and not only that, they dig their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. So the water they put in is not living, and even that they lose. What a horrible situation. And the heavens are astonished that anyone could respond to a loving God like this. How horribly deprived we are, and how poverty-stricken when we walk by sight and not by faith when we stop believing God. Bible records no future visits of Jesus to his hometown. I'm not saying he didn't go, I'm just saying the Bible doesn't say. This might have been it. Last chance. And it's a haunting thought, isn't it? How much of our lack of faith keeps the Lord from working at south? How much of my lack of faith keeps God from doing something amazing? So you come to church and you say, well, that wasn't much. You read your Bible and you say, that's not too moving. You hear a song and you say, that doesn't touch me. Could the problem just possibly be, I I, I don't mean to be offensive, but could the problem just possibly be you? And me? A tourist one time went to a famous museum and walked through rather quickly from picture to picture, scarcely knowing, noting what was in the frames. And on his way out, said to the guard, I don't see anything special in there. To which the guard said, Sir, the pictures aren't on trial. Visitors are. These things are already reckoned as masterpieces. I guess this reveals more about you 
than it does about the museum. And so Jesus went out and taught in other places. He was amazed. He could not do because they didn't believe. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray. We believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, let us not become like your hometown, that although they were blessed with all the privileges of your word and your deeds, of seeing you grow up in their midst, knowing your family, they rejected you. One time they tried to kill you. And then they discredited you, saying that your works were the works of the evil one. Oh, Lord, may we walk by simple but genuine faith in the God who cannot lie. And may we experience your wonderful working power in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.